Hi, you're listening to Square Two, a podcast building upon Square One, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here you will find insightful, restored Church of Jesus Christ thought concerning the important issues of the world today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Today's episode features an article entitled, Hidden in Plain View, Mother in Heaven in Scripture, by Val Larson, published in Square Two, Volume 8, Number 2, and read by Sean Canney. Abstract Heavenly Mother is prominently present in Scripture. She plays all the roles we would expect a Divine Mother to play. While her presence has been obscured by the loss of plain and precious parts of original texts, her extensive involvement in the lives of her children is nevertheless still apparent if the scriptures are closely read with attention to symbols and surrogates. As the modern zeitgeist impels us to look for the feminine divine in the scriptural canon, voices speaking from the dust, especially the Book of Mormon, providently give us background information necessary to find our Divine Mother hidden in plain view. Heavenly Mother is prominently present in Scripture. With the Father, she is Alpha and Omega. That is, we find her in the first verses of Genesis. And when we look for her in the last chapter of Revelation, she is there. In the scriptural account of our departure from the pre-existence, we take leave of Mother in Heaven. During our lives on earth, when we are sick or afflicted, she blesses, comforts, and heals us. She is present when the Savior effects the atonement, and she puts us on the path to fully claim that great gift. When we return to heaven at the end of this life, we find her there to greet us and help us be born again in immortal and exalted bodies. She prominently plays all the roles we would expect a Divine Mother to play. And yet, to most of her children, she is unknown. She is tragically unseen by the multitudes who inwardly long to know her. For Latter-day Saints, the fact that we have a mother in heaven is not in question and has not been since the days of Joseph Smith. Even our most elementary lesson manual, Gospel Principles, mentions that we have heavenly parents. It is well-established Mormon doctrine that men cannot attain exaltation and godhood without woman, nor woman without men. Doctrine and Covenants 132, 19-20 But while the existence of Mother in Heaven is not in doubt, most Latter-day Saints assume virtually nothing that has been revealed about her beyond the fact that she exists. We must eagerly await, they suppose, further revelation in God's due time. The validity of that supposition probably depends on whether the existence of our Heavenly Mother is ancient truth restored, or truth revealed for the first time in this dispensation. If, like other key gospel truths, it is a restored doctrine, then we should expect to find traces of Mother in Heaven in Scripture. Though plain and precious things have been expunged, 1 Nephi 13.28-29, it is unlikely that a truth of such foundational importance could completely disappear from scriptural and other historical texts. Fortunately, there are many indications that Mother in Heaven was known to the ancients. It is therefore incumbent on us to recognize her presence in the scriptures we have. The Lord rarely gives us new revelation on a matter 
until we have carefully studied and understood what he has already given us. While the scriptures should and will be the main foundation of this article, our search for additional understanding of Heavenly Mother may be more successful if we draw insights from scholars who specialize in the study of the Bible and the ancient Near East. Mother in Heaven, in her many guises, has become a topic of intense interest to contemporary biblical and ancient Near East scholars. The zeitgeist of our time leads them to search for the feminine divine, and providently, recent discoveries of ancient documents and artifacts have added new voices that speak to us from the dust about the roles of Mother in Heaven may have played in the theologies and rituals of the ancient Hebrews and surrounding peoples. This vein of scholarship is immense. No attempt will be made here to harmonize or fully explicate the many nuanced and sometimes conflicting views of scholars who write on this theme. What will be cited are various strands of this scholarship that converge with Mormon thought and illuminate themes of interest to Latter-day Saints. The most important supplement to the close readings of Scripture that are the main focus of this article will be the work of Methodist scholar Margaret Barker, whose readings of ancient texts are so often consonant with foundational assumptions of Mormon theology. Modern prophets have restored the truth that we have a mother in heaven. The time is now right, and the tools are now available for us to come to more nearly know our Divine Mother as we ought. In this article, I discuss how Mother in Heaven came to be hidden in plain view, and how we can again see her in the scriptural record that bears witness of her as well as of the Father and the Son. Let me conclude this introduction by acknowledging that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, thankfully, have an exclusive right to declare doctrine. Their monopoly on establishing doctrine is the sure foundation for our unity in the faith. What is offered here is theology, not doctrine. And as Adam S. Miller has sagely observed, quote, theology is always tentative and non-binding. Theology, though sensitive to what is normative, never decides doctrine, end quote. Miller then adds, quote, Though this is a kind of weakness, this weakness is also theology's unique strength. Because it is hypothetical, theology is free to map whatever charitable patterns the details of the text may prompt it to pursue. The rich theological possibilities of a text are, in principle, limited only by the critically productive questions that we as readers are capable of bringing to bear. If a particular approach does not bear charity, then nothing has been lost. If an approach does not reveal patterns of meaning that address the root of human suffering, then its productivity speaks for itself. End quote. As noted above, prophets have declared that we have a Heavenly Mother. This exercise in theology explores rich possibilities in our scriptural texts, specifically, the possibility that more than we have supposed is revealed about Mother in Heaven. That close reading of Scripture may alleviate the suffering of those who deeply mourn the functional absence of Heavenly Mother in their lives. In the beginning, let us begin with the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. 
The Hebrew word usually translated God in this verse is Elohim, the plural of El. El means God, and Elohim means gods. If one accepts the doctrine that a man and woman must be sealed to each other to attain godhood, Doctrine and Covenants 132, 19-20, this plural name of for God is what might be expected. It seems to support the idea that God is a sealed couple, El and Ella, who jointly constitute Elohim. As expected, we find a plural verb, naes, coupled with the plural noun, Elohim, when the gods say, quote, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, male and female, end quote. Genesis 1, 26-27. In this reading, it is not Adam, nor is it Eve, who is formed in the image of God. It is Adam and Eve, as a couple, who are in the image of Elohim. Elohim appear 2,602 times in the Old Testament. So if we understand this plural generally to represent mother as well as father in heaven, we will see that mother is ubiquitous in scripture. And if we read plurals in this way, mother also appears 432 times as Adonai, another plural name of God that means lords. Plural adjectives are also used to describe God. For example, Hayim, 1 Samuel 17.26, and Kadoshim, Joshua 29.19, which describe the Elohim as living and holy. This is not, of course, the only way the text can be read. For most Old Testament scholars, God is taught to be just one person, and the plurals Elohim and Adonai are thus a problem that needs to be explained away. Most hold that though they are grammatically plural, the name Elohim and the title Adonai are notionally singular. Some have suggested that the plural forms are a kind of plural of majesty, or royal we, that emphasizes the majesty of God. This supposition is supported by the fact that though it is sometimes paired with plural forms, Elohim is most often paired with singular forms of the verb and adjective. And in some passages, for example Psalms 42.2, the singular El and plural Elohim are mixed and seem to be equated. Indeed, Yahweh, Elohim, and Adonai are often mixed together in ways that suggest no consistent distinction is made between these different manifestations of God. For example, Exodus 6.2. So there is much evidence and persuasive reasoning that supports the typical view of scholars that Elohim is just one God and is not distinguished from Yahweh in the Old Testament. The various contexts in which Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, and El mix and overlap probably cannot be entirely explained away and thus remain the principal stumbling block for adopting the reading proposed here. And yet we too, while fully understanding that Elohim and Jehovah are distinct, often mix them together indiscriminately. Elohim is our God, but as Spencer W. Kimball taught, we refer to Jehovah as the God of this world. In bearing testimony, we indiscriminately mix expressions of gratitude to God and to Christ. We always mention both El and Jehovah in our prayers. We occasionally refer to our heavenly parents when talking about God. 
So the intermingling of various divine beings in discourse is not a practice that is confined only to the Old Testament. It happens in our day as well. In part, this mixing of beings and titles may reflect the perfect congruence of will in the Elohim and Yahweh. The combination of the plural Elohim with singular verbs is less problematic. If Latter-day Saints think of El and Elah as an inseparable divine unit that attains godhood and acts as God only when they act together, then the singular verbs and adjectives are not inconsistent with the Mormon understanding of divine ontology. Father and mother act as and one, and insofar as they are Elohim, exist as one. Thus, if the issue is the singular form of the verb, there can be few expressions in the scriptural text that will support the typical scholarly reading, but not support the proposed Mormon reading of the plurals Elohim and Adonai. This unity of father and mother that is affirmed in Mormon theology seems to be beautifully expressed in Proverbs 8.22-36, where Mother speaks of creation. Quote, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth nor the fields, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. Then I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed, Asher, are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed, Asher, is the man that heareth me. For whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. This passage contains wordplay on the name Asherah, one of the names of Mother in Heaven. It suggests that to know Heavenly Mother is to find life and favor with God, to deny her and hate her is death. The grounds for thinking of Elohim and Adonai as both father and mother are not limited to what we just have discussed. The ancient record is quite clear, and ever more clear as additional voices have spoken from the dust, that many inhabitants of Canaan worshipped a divine family, at least sometimes understood to consist of Father El, Mother Elah, and their son Yahweh. Elah appears under a variety of different names, for example, Elot, Asherah, and Atarat. Commenting on this family, Barker writes, quote, Before Josiah and Deuteronomy, when Yahweh assumed all the ancient roles and titles of El, Asherah would have been the consort of El, and Yahweh would have been the son of El and his consort, Asherah. End quote. The Elohim and their children, the Ben Elohim, or the host of heaven, were taught to rule the earth as a council of divine beings. Thus, in Deuteronomy 32, 7-8, an earlier religion was recalled in which Elon, the high god, divided the rule of the earth among the Ben Elohim, the children of Elohim. 
assigning his subordinate son, Yahweh, lordship over Israel. This betrayal of the divine family was suppressed in the Mesoteric text and the King James Bible, which replaced the Ben Elohim with sons of Israel, making the text incoherent. As we shall see, Asherah was also suppressed in various scriptural passages, and she and the Ben Elohim were cast out of the temple in Jerusalem. While this divine council was variously conceived, sometimes including a female figure, sometimes not, it repeatedly shows up both inside and outside of the Bible as a family of gods who govern the earth. For example, in Job 1.6, 1 Kings 22.19-22. The sometimes presence of a mother god in this pantheon is another strand of evidence that mother in heaven was known anciently and participated with Father in creating the earth and orchestrating the salvation of her children. The analysis to this point suggests two rationales for seeing Mother in Heaven as ubiquitous in Scripture, and I here add a third that reaches the same conclusion. The first approach would be to see the plural verbs and adjectives associated with the plural noun Elohim as the residue of an earlier text in which the precious truth that we have a mother in heaven was plainly communicated by consistent plural verbs and adjectives. Toward the end of his life, Joseph Smith seemed to endorse this approach. Quote, in the very beginning, the Bible shows there is a plurality of gods beyond the power of refutation. The word Elohim ought to be in the plural all the way through. When you take that view of the subject, it sets one free to see all the beauty, holiness, and perfection of the gods. End quote. Barker also provides substantial support for this approach by giving examples of passages scribes may have changed to obscure the presence of mother. In some cases, as with Ben Elohim in Deuteronomy 32.8, restoring mother makes a passage intelligible that is now unreadable. A second, more conservative approach would be to assume that the text is largely intact as originally handed down, and then to emphasize the fact that mother and father are Elohim only when they act as one. Verbs and adjectives in the singular can then be read as reflecting the necessary unity of the male-female union that constitutes Elohim in the many appearances of that divine actor. A third approach would be to grant whatever claims scholars make about original meaning of the text, but then reinterpret what is written in the light of revelation in our day. Given the consistent message of restoration, prophets, that we have a mother in heaven, modern Mormons might view the plurals Elohim and Adonai as providential. In the context of knowledge now revealed, they may signify in our day both father and mother in heaven, even if they did not have that meaning when the text was originally written. If any of these paths are followed, mother's presence in the Old Testament becomes ubiquitous, with more than 3,000 appearances in the text. In the King James Bible, Elohim is translated as God, Adonai as Lord, and Yahweh as Lord or God. Keith Meservy has suggested that, quote, we can find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament by substituting Jehovah for Lord whenever it appears. Then something wonderful happens. 
Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, appears from the beginning to the end of this great book as the God of the Old Testament. End quote. By following the same strategy and substituting Elohim and Adonai for God and Lord, we can have the wonderful experience of seeing our divine parents, the Elohim, blessing their children from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. The Asherah Tree while her acts in conjunction with the Father and Son are an important part of what Mother in Heaven does, the main focus of this article will be her distinct presence in Scripture. And to understand that, we must review how Mother seems to have manifested herself in Israel up to the time of Lehi. That a Heavenly Mother was known as Asherah and was worshipped in Israel is now recognized by a majority of biblical scholars. Substantial evidence indicates that this was the case. What is also clear is that the symbol of her being and presence was a tree. She was often represented, including in the temple, by a statue that had the trunk of a tree at the bottom and the figure of a woman at the top. This statue is the most common religious artifact archaeology has found in and around pre-exilic Jerusalem with the majority of the finds being in the holy city itself. The ubiquity of these figures and other tree artifacts associated with her leaves little doubt that worship of Asherah, Queen of Heaven, consort of El, was an integral part of Hebrew religious practice, at least among the common people. The archaeological evidence is supported by the biblical text, which also indicates that Asherah was widely worshipped among the Hebrews. The tree being her symbol, her worship was associated with holy trees and sacred groves, which are frequently mentioned as places of worship and covenant-making in the Old Testament. The first use of the word grove is in Genesis 21.33, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. End quote. Abraham had earlier constructed his first altar in the Promised Land at Shechem, Genesis 12, 4-7, a location distinguished by a great oak tree, Elah, that was regarded as the sanctuary of God, El. Under this oak, Jacob buried the false gods of his household, Genesis 35, 4, and under it, Joshua set up a pillar to commemorate the covenant between the Lord and Israel. Joshua 24, 24-26. Gideon, too, was called into service and offered sacrifices to God on an altar under an oak tree. Judges 6, 11-20. The tree is the place of covenant-making, especially a tree with an altar, was an important motif in the ancient Near East. The connection, Wright observes, between the tree and covenant-making is apparent iconographically. Figure 1 is one of his iconic examples of trees serving as the locus and witness of a covenant. Hunsaker notes that trees were often incorporated in ancient temples, then suggests that the ancient pattern is replicated in modern temples that have garden rooms where images of the tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil stand witness as covenants are made at the temple altar. To see figure 1, please see the article on square2.org.
As noted above, the first Old Testament use of grove is positive, as are early attitudes towards sacred trees. This comes as no surprise given the tree's important role in ritual. Asherah is the word usually translated grove by the King James translators. Leah, her maid Zilpha, and Jacob seem to have honored Asherah by naming their son Asher, and thus one of the tribes of Israel, after her. The frequent subsequent mention of groves in later books of the Old Testament makes it clear that Asher was an integral part of Hebrew worship, but in that later time the groves are negatively framed, a fact that will be discussed in some detail below. In addition to being worshipped in sacred groves all around Israel, Mother in Heaven was worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem, which contained a number of items that honored her. The architecture and decoration of the temple prominently featured trees, 1 Kings 6, 29-36, and Psalms 52-8. But most obvious was the Asherah set up in the courtyard of the temple to represent Mother in Heaven, probably an image of the goddess as woman, with a tree trunk at the bottom, but possibly just her symbol, a living almond tree cut to grow in the shape of a menorah. Hattai estimates that this most obvious symbol of Asherah was in Solomon's temple for 236 of the 370 years it existed. Along with being prominently visible in the temple courtyard, 2 Kings 21, 5-7, Mother in Heaven was clearly represented for all who understood her connection with trees in the innermost sanctum of the temple, the Deber, or Holy of Holies. Passage into this most holy place was mediated by Mother, for the entrance to the Deber was a door made of olive wood, 1 Kings 6, 31-33. Inside the Deber was the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark was Aaron's rod, Hebrews 9, 4, an apparently dead wooden staff that blossomed and bore almonds, thus becoming a living almond tree, Numbers 17, 8. The menorah, a lamp in the form of the stylized almond tree that signified Asherah, see Exodus 25, 31-38, was the source of light in the Holy of Holies. In the Deuteronomist purge discussed below, it was moved from the Deber to the middle room of the temple, the Hekel, or holy place, a circumstance anticipated by Isaiah's complaint about, quote, putting darkness for light and light for darkness, end quote, Isaiah 5.20. Jewish tradition recalls the presence of Mother in Heaven in the Deborah as follows, quote, She departed from the earth after the sin of Adam, but returned when the Ark of the Tabernacle was constructed, and made her home there. Later, she took up residence in the Holy of Holies of the Temple in Jerusalem, and remained there until the Temple was destroyed, end quote. The menorah that lit the Holy of Holies in the temple seems to be an Asherah, an artificial replica of the living almond trees cut to grow in the shape of a menorah that symbolized Asherah, and that were an ubiquitous and often mentioned sacred object in places of worship throughout Israel. This living tree, and the flaming symbolic tree in the Deber, probably memorialize the occasion when God, Elohim, called unto Moses out of the midst of the bush, 
that burned but was not consumed. The tree-like bush may have signified the female aspect of the Elohim, who called Moses to lead the Exodus and be the great law-giving prophet of ancient Israel. Exodus 3.4 That bush, in turn, probably memorialized the mother tree in Eden that was guarded by cherubim and lighted by a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Genesis 3.24 Moses 4.31 Thus each of these flaming trees may signify the same referent, Elah. As noted above, one passage through an olive tree doorway to enter the Deber, and found in the Deber was the holy anointing oil. This oil was understood to be a product of the tree of life. According to Joseph Smith, an olive tree, this sacred olive oil was used to light the temple by burning it in the tree-like menorah. And as in the temple today, olive oil was used to confer holiness and power, to make one a king or queen, priest or priestess, a son or daughter of God in a higher, more sacred sense. The sacred oil was also understood to have healing power including in its ultimate use, the power to resurrect. Given that she is the source of this sacred oil, Mother in Heaven continues to play an important role in our lives today when we use consecrated oil in making temple covenants that empower us to be more like the Elohim and when we use it to comfort and heal the sick. Through the oil, Mother in Heaven symbolically touches us in our moments of most profound worship and greatest physical or emotional need. And since it is anointing with this holy oil that makes Jesus the Anointed One, in Greek, the Christ, we honor not just our Savior, but also our Mother in Heaven, as we proudly bear the name Christian. As Christians, we too are anointed by her love and grace as well as by that of her firstborn son. Margaret Barker and Daniel Peterson persuasively argue that one of the titles of Mother in Heaven was Wisdom. If we acknowledge this title, we find in the Bible beautiful tributes to Mother with wordplay on the name Asherah and laments that she has been forced out of the temple and obscured from our view. In the following passage, we find her celebrated and linked to the tree of life. Quote, Happy, Ashri, is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy, asher root, is every one that retaineth her. Proverbs 3, 13-18 Recognizing her connection to the tree of life, we may come to see Mother in Heaven as being symbolically embodied in the most sacred place of all in the ancient temple, the mercy seat, the throne of God. 
The mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant is guarded by two cherubim, just like what seems to be Mother in Heaven's preeminent symbol, the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. Unsurprisingly, in Jewish tradition, the Divine Mother figure is associated with the mercy seat. During Josiah's Deuteronomist purge that occurred just a few years before the complete destruction of Solomon's temple and the deportation of Israel to Babylon, the statue of Asherah was dragged out of the temple and was destroyed. 2 Kings 23.6 In Proverbs 1.20-33, Mother in Heaven again appears to speak to Israel and prophesy that those who have rejected her will eat the bitter fruit of going their own way, rather that the delicious fruit of the tree of life, and will thus face destruction. Quote, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the street, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity and hate knowledge? I have called, and ye refused. Ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. End quote. While the destruction of the Asherah statue is celebrated by the Deuteronomist authors of Second Kings, objectively speaking, the fruits of this rejection were disastrous. In the immediate aftermath of its rejection of Mother in Heaven, Israel suffered the greatest calamity of its ancient history, the destruction of the temple and captivity in Babylon. On the other hand, the promise in verse 33, that whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell in safety and shall be quiet from fear of evil, seems to have been fulfilled in the lives of Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob, who, as we shall see, rejected the policy and theology changes made by the royal and priestly elites of their day. The Great Apostasies Implicit in what is said above and explicit in what is said below is a strong critique of Josiah and the Deuteronomists. In offering this critique, I mostly read against the grain of the biblical text handed down to us that specifically mention Josiah. To get a balanced view of the possibilities, readers should peruse Josiah's Reform and Introduction by Benjamin L. McGuire and two companion articles, William Hamblin's sympathetic reading of Josiah's actions in Vindicating Josiah, and Kevin Christensen's Prophets and Kings in Lehi's Jerusalem and Margaret Barker's Temple Theology, which generally approaches the Josiah material much as I do in this article. The Great Apostasy Most readers of this article will be well acquainted with the idea of a great apostasy in the meridian of time. Here I will briefly review and expand on that idea, with particular attention to parallels between that time 
and the time just before the destruction of Solomon's temple, and the deportation of the Jews to Babylon, a time which might aptly be called the Greater Apostasy. In discussing the Great Apostasy, we rightly focus on the period of theological chaos, state persecution, then state co-optation that caused or followed in the wake of the death of Christ's apostles. But it is fruitful to reflect on an earlier moment in that apostasy, the moment when Yahweh himself was rejected, cast out, and killed by the priestly keepers of his holy house. The loss of the true faith in the meridian of time was caused not just by the state, but also by the priestly leaders of the second temple, Mark 1460 60-65. While the rejection of Yahweh by the keepers of his house must in the end be an act of bad faith, it had a predicate. Doctrines that were established as Jewish orthodoxy by Josiah and Hilkiah in the time of Lehi, when Mother in Heaven was being cast from the temple. Christ's teachings seemed to contradict orthodox teachings on the oneness of God, the overriding obligation to observe the law of Moses, the centrality of the temple and its governing priesthood, and the completeness of existing revelation. When Jesus claimed to be the great, I am, who fulfilled and superseded the law, when he cleansed the temple, when he brought forward new doctrine, he was a genuine threat to the regent orthodoxy of the temple priests and was dealt with accordingly. Like Saul of Tarsus, some of his opponents were clearly motivated by zeal to protect what they wrongly perceived to be the true religion. But whether done in good or bad faith, Casting God out of the temple led to disaster. Thirty-seven years after the leadership rejected Jesus and had killed him, the reign of the priests ended, and the temple they misgoverned was completely destroyed. Like the priests' effort to enforce orthodoxy, Constantine's effort to create unity in the fragmented Christian faith of his time was understandable and in the context of the time, an example of good statecraft. Theologically, the judgments of the great ecumenical councils assembled by the emperor were mostly sound. The councils correctly rejected many forgeries and heresies and generally made the correct calls on doctrine and which texts should be authoritative. But a combination of Neoplatonist philosophy and Deuteronomist Old Testament theology caused the councils to embrace and promulgate a monist theology to the extent that such a theology was possible within a Christian framework that included Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yielding to the monist temptation, the common philosophical drive to reduce multiplicity to unity, they used the paradoxical concept of the Trinity to reduce God to one entity and substance and thus misconceived his essential nature. With the blessing of Constantine and subsequent emperors, they enforced the new orthodoxy and suppressed other, in some cases, more correct doctrines, using the power of the state and acts of violence that God had foreseen and condemned. 1 Nephi 13.5 They replicated the error that had earlier obscured the dual nature of the Elohim by effacing Mother in Heaven. The Greater Apostasy 
The great councils 300 years after Christ were decisive in establishing an orthodox religion that is still embraced by the majority of Christian churches today. But probably more important theologically was the Deuteronomist reform that occurred 600 years before Christ in the last days of the first temple. We get a more or less consistent account of this period in the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. There we are told that in the time of King Josiah, during a renovation of the temple, the high priest Hilkiah discovered the book of the Law of the Lord, generally thought to be portions of the book of Deuteronomy. 2 Kings 22, 8-11, 2 Chronicles 34, 14-19. In reading this book, Josiah learned that Israel had not met its obligation to be exclusively faithful to Yahweh and to make the Jerusalem temple an exclusive center of high ritual practice. Josiah covenanted to live in harmony with the newly discovered book, and like Constantine at a much later time, began a violent purge of all other forms of worship in Israel. Like the rulers of the second temple who would later reject the divine son, these guardians of the first temple rejected the divine mother, Josiah and Hilkiah dragged the Asherah in the courtyard and other vessels associated with her from the temple and destroyed them, 2 Kings 23.6. More egregiously than Constantine and his bishops, they made war on the religion of the common people. They destroyed all the high places and killed the priests who supported the worship of any god but Yahweh. In consequence, Josiah was celebrated as being uniquely pious, quote, and like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him, end quote, 2 Kings 23.25. Josiah thus became the exemplar of personal righteousness in Deuteronomy the normative religious text. Theologically, Josiah and Hilkiah's top-down purge of the religion of Israel was a triumph. Embraced by the elites, it became the new orthodoxy. Prior to Josiah, there had been a divine family and a council of gods. But Deuteronomy declared, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I, even I am he, and there is no God with me, end quote. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 32, 39. That became the new orthodoxy. Exodus had affirmed that the leaders of Israel saw a corporeal God, Exodus 24, 10. But Deuteronomy, in an obvious attempt to change that theology, belabored the point that, quote, Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Oreb, lest ye make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, male or female. End quote. Deuteronomy 4.12, 15-16 That God is incorporeal, and that the female divinity Asher was an abomination, became the orthodox religion. Prior to the Deuteronomist reforms, Worship had been decentralized, and the high priest in Jerusalem had been one among many who ministered sacrifices. 
the book found or authored by the Levite high priest Hilkiah, changed that, quote, Take heed to thyself that thou forsake not the Levite as long as thou livest, end quote. Deuteronomy 12:19. Offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose, the Jerusalem temple. End quote. Deuteronomy 12, 13-14. This new theology is declared to be unchangeable. Quote, ye shall not add unto the word, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. End quote. Deuteronomy 4, 2. The people are to be suspicious of prophets who teach new doctrines. They should accept prophecies only after unfolding events have validated them. Deuteronomy 13, 1-3 and 18. 21 through 22. Anyone who teaches anything inconsistent with Deuteronomy is to be killed. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10. Possibly by having the people hang him on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22. It is undeniable that Deuteronomy contains much truth and that the purges of Josiah and Hilkiah ended wicked practices such as the sacrificing of children to Moloch. Like the councils of Constantine, Josiah's purge had its virtues, but it is also clear that the purge was not the restoration of the original Hebrew faith that it is described to be in the Deuteronomist histories that have come down to us in the Bible. Josiah and Hilkiah were very successful theological innovators who, like their later Christian counterparts, were seduced by the monist temptation and therefore got the essential nature of God wrong. Josiah and Hilkiah, like their priestly counterparts in the meridian of time, cast a divine being out of the temple they administered, and that temple became, as a consequence, ripe for destruction. After surviving for hundreds of years under supposedly faithless kings, the temple was destroyed and the reign of the Davidic kings ended with Josiah's son Zedekiah a mere twenty years after Josiah's death, just as the second temple would be destroyed thirty-seven years after its priestly leaders cast Jehovah out of it and sought to utterly destroy him. So the first temple was destroyed about forty years after Josiah and Hilkiah destroyed the tree image that symbolized Mother in Heaven and thus cast her out of the temple. While the Bible praises Josiah as a paragon, the events it records suggest the story was more complicated. Four verses after declaring him to be the best of all the Davidic kings, and in spite of Huldah's prophecy that he would die in peace, 2 Kings 22, 18-20, the Bible reports that Josiah was killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho, 2 Kings 23, 29. Non-Deuteronomist 2 Chronicles 35, 20-24 informs us that his death was caused by his own heedless aggression and unwillingness to hear the word of God. Necho wanted to pass peacefully through Josiah's territory, but manifesting the same aggressiveness that had caused him to attack his own people, Josiah attacked Necho and was killed. Israel was then compelled to pay a huge tribute to Egypt and in the following twenty years never fully recovered its independence. These disastrous events 
provided fodder for Josiah's many extra-biblical critics, who, Margaret Barker notes, quote, are surprisingly consistent in their account of what happened in the time of Josiah. The godless people in the temple became blind and abandoned wisdom just before the temple was burned and the people scattered. Those who set up the second temple and its cult, that is, those who collected and edited the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, were described as apostates, end quote. Writing in the immediate aftermath of Josiah's purge, but looking ahead to the great apostasy in the meridian of time, Nephi observed that apostates would change the scriptures and take out many parts which are plain and most precious, 1 Nephi 13.26. In writing this, Nephi may have been thinking not only of what he had been shown in vision about the future, but also of what he had personally observed in his own time. For there are many indications that the Bible text was changed by Deuteronomist scribes to expunge Mother in Heaven and condemn belief in her. Indeed, far more changes in the scriptural text seem to have been made during the greater apostasy of the Deuteronomists than during the great apostasy in the murdering of time. Barker reviews many apparent scribal changes in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Proverbs, and a number of other biblical texts that seem to have transformed these proponents of the Divine Mother into opponents. She identifies a number of passages that have been made unintelligible, apparently by changes made to obscure what were once a plain and precious teaching about Mother in Heaven. Whatever their merits or demerits with regard to the truth, the Deuteronomist reforms and associated scribal changes were wonderfully successful in practice. They established the theological horizon within which all subsequent Judeo-Christian thought and teaching occurred. Jesus faced immense Deuteronomist resistance from the Sadducees, and in revealing his essential role as the atoning Son of God, could only partially restore knowledge of the heavenly family during his ministry. Even in the wake of that great revelation, the keepers of Christian orthodoxy joined their Jewish counterparts in again declaring revelation closed. Since the Elohim respect our agency and our role as co-creators of the world in which we live, they are constrained by the horizon of belief so successfully created by Josiah and Hilkiah and later by Constantine and his councils. Joseph Smith learned while still young that the corporality of God was a bridge too far for most Christians of his day. Joseph Smith 1, 21-25 So when the church was first organized, emphasis was placed on the opening of the heavens as manifested by the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, rather than on the first vision. Only in the 1840s did the first vision become an important point of doctrinal emphasis. And even then, it was not used as a proselyting tool for another century. Resistance to Mother in Heaven would have been more pronounced than resistance to the corporality of God. In the wake of the greater apostasy that destroyed belief in the Heavenly Family, expressing belief in Mother in Heaven became impossible within the Judeo-Christian tradition if one wished to speak with any credibility to others in that tradition. 
Only recently have voices from the dust, scholarship, and social change begun to make the doctrine that we have a mother in heaven, both well supported by evidence, and at least with certain populations, a proselytizing asset rather than a liability. Outside Mormonism, as my many citations of her indicate, Margaret Barker has been the most prolific scholarly revealer of Mother in Heaven. Within Mormonism, the seminal article on this topic is Daniel C. Peterson's Nephi and his Asherah. Going forward, the keystone scriptural text in restoring knowledge of Mother in Heaven will almost certainly be the Book of Mormon. A Second Witness for Mother in Heaven Mother in Heaven is remarkably visible in the Book of Mormon, given that it would first be published in a Deuteronomist culture, and that the Divine Mother would, therefore, have to be hidden for the book to achieve its initial mission. She seems to be hidden in plain view as a major theme in Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob's teachings. And it is almost impossible to overstate the theological importance of what these three prophets, and Zenus and Zenoch, say. Since Josiah's purge and the subsequent Babylonian captivity were so pivotal in the development of Hebrew theology, a reliable, unedited text from that time has immense value, and the small plates of Nephi are that text. As if written specifically in refutation, Nephi's account contests point by point the doctrinal innovations of Deuteronomy. The most important doctrinal change it seems to contest is the rejection of Mother in Heaven. Perhaps there is a double entendre when Nephi repeatedly declares that it is wisdom in God that he obtained the brass plates, 1 Nephi 3.19 and 5.22. For Mother in Heaven probably was not as thoroughly purged from the brass plates as she has been from the Bible. The Book of Mormon opens with the calling of Lehi as one of the prophets mentioned in 2 Chronicles 36.15-16. Lehi is motivated to prophesy by a vision in which he sees God sitting on his throne, then one descending out of the midst of heaven, whose luster was above that of the sun at noonday, and who was followed by twelve others, 1 Nephi 1, 8-10. The one descending is the Messiah, who has been anointed with the holy oil of the tree, 1 Nephi 1, 19. The heavenly visitors give Lehi a new book of scripture, which he reads. The book which may be the Book of Mormon, prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed, but that those who hearken and come unto Elohim, that is, Lehi and his family, will not perish. 1 Nephi 1.14 and Proverbs 1.33 Having read the book, Lehi exclaims, quote, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty, Yahuwah El Shaddai. End quote. 1 Nephi 1.14 In the King James Old Testament, the word Almighty, which occurs 48 times, is always a translation of Shaddai, a name for God that in the Bible is associated with fertility and that may signify breasts, being thus the God with breasts or the divine female. So Lehi seems to open the Book of Mormon by glorifying the divine Son, Father, and Mother. As he invokes Son Yahweh, the Good Shepherd, Father, El, and Mother, Shaddai, he may have in mind Jacob's blessing of Joseph, Lehi's progenitor, 1 Nephi 5.14.
for all three divine beings are mentioned in Joseph's patriarchal blessing, which is about to be fulfilled through Lehi. Quote, Joseph is a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. His hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even El, translated God, who shall help thee, and by Shaddai, translated the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of the breasts, Shaddim in Hebrew, and of the womb, end quote. Genesis 49, 22, and 24 through 25. While it is in harmony with the older religion of Genesis, Lehi's vision and the book he has given contradict Deuteronomy's doctrines that God cannot be seen and that there is no God with me, Deuteronomy 32:39. The visions reaffirm the existence of the heavenly family, faithful to the instructions given them by Deuteronomy 13:6 through 10. The Jews mock and seek to kill this prophet who dares to challenge the teachings of their newly normative fifth book in the Pentateuch, and its Josian orthodoxy. Lehi is forced to flee into the wilderness, where he continues to violate the strictures of Josiah, Hilkiah, and Deuteronomy. He builds an altar outside of Jerusalem, and though he is not a Levite, offers a sacrifice to God, 1 Nephi 2.7. His wife Sariah joins him at the altar as he offers a second sacrifice, 1 Nephi 5.9. His son Nephi later violates the Deuteronomist code still more egregiously by building not just an altar, but an entire temple outside of Jerusalem. Lehi's Dream The centerpiece of Lehi and Nephi's teaching is Lehi's Dream, a theological tableau that features a sacred tree that is separated by a chasm of filthy water from a great and spacious building full of mocking people. The significance of this dream will be more apparent if we recognize that it is set in the Jerusalem Lehi knew so well. Other than the palace of the king, the greatest and most spacious building known to Lehi was Solomon's temple, which was located on the Temple Mount, the highest point in Jerusalem. On the east, the Temple Mount steeply declined into the Kidron Valley. On the other side of the narrow valley was the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane would later be located. Water flowed into the Kidron from two very different sources. There were sudden, dangerous, and dirty flash floods, and there was a source of living, pure water, the Gihon Spring, that was associated with Asherah, and also known as a Virgin Spring. Each of these features of Jerusalem topography played an important role in Lehi's dream. Let us begin with the great and spacious building. In his book, Plain and Precious Things, Dave Butler offers several reasons for thinking that this great building is the temple. The fact that the building is high in the air suggests it is a temple. Temples are archetypally in a high place. Butler notes that Heckel was the most obvious word for Lehi to use to describe the great and spacious building. Heckel refers specifically to the large middle room in the temple, but it was also used for the temple as a whole and for any large building. If Lehi said Heckel, great building, and temple were alternative translations of what he said, Lehi indicated that the people in the building wore clothing that was exceedingly fine, 1 Nephi 8.27. 
Butler notes that Exodus repeatedly prescribes fine clothing as the appropriate dress for the priests in the temple. Exodus 28, 5-8, and 39, and Exodus 39, 27-29. The mocking people in the great and spacious building are clearly connected with the Jews who mocked Lehi as he prophesied, 1 Nephi 1.19. They are of the house of Israel, 1 Nephi 13.35. Among the mockers, the Bible tells us were the chief of the priests, who would be found in the temple, 2 Chronicles 36, 14-16. Since they have the power to kill him in spite of his status and personal wealth, it is apparent that the people who oppose and mock Lehi include the civil and religious authorities of Jerusalem, that is, the people who control and administer the temple. And of course, their temple, like the great and spacious building, is on the verge of an exceedingly great fall, 2 Chronicles 36, 19 and 1 Nephi 11.35-36. The Kitron Chasm can help us understand how the house of Elohim and Jehovah came to be transformed into a great and spacious building without foundations, without roots. It was destroyed because those who administered it rejected wisdom and embraced the world and the wisdom thereof. 1 Nephi 11.35. From Nephi, who generally reframes Lehi's vision in apocalyptic and explicitly allegorical terms, we learn that the chasm with its filthy water signifies the depths of hell, 1 Nephi 16, 26-29. The myths associated with the chasm are the deceptions of the devil, which blind the eyes and harden the hearts of God's children, 1 Nephi 12, 16-17. In the Bible, it is noteworthy that Josiah and Hilkiah destroyed the Asherah figure located in the temple by dragging it down into Kidron and burning it, 2 Kings 23.6. In Jewish tradition, this desecration of Asherah is remembered as the rejection of the Shekinah, the feminine part of Elohim, the wife of God, who was taken out of the Holy of Holies and departed the Temple Mount through the mercy gate that leads into the Kidron Valley. This is the gate that Josiah and Hilkiah undoubtedly used to drag Asherah into the valley because it is the gate closest to the temple when exiting the temple compound on the Kidron side. Passing through this gate, the tradition says, the rejected goddess went into exile just prior to the destruction of the first temple. When the Deuteronomist also rejected and mocked Lehi's message that Yahuwah is a corporeal Messiah, son of a corporeal father who sits on the throne, they cast the entire heavenly family out of their temple home, and thus left it high in the air, without foundation, ripe for the fall that would soon follow. Though in the Bible account the Ben Elohim is rejected, along with the rest of the host of heaven, and like the Asherah is cast into the Kidron Valley, 2 Kings 23, 4-6. In Lehi's dream, both son and mother still exist in full glory opposite the great and spacious temple on the Mount of Olives side of the Kidron Valley. Lehi's dream is supported by Ezekiel 11, 22-23, and by Jewish tradition, which also says 
that the Shekinah dwelled on the Mount of Olives after being rejected by the Jews and exiled through the Mercy Gate. Thus, in the dream, the rejected mother and son are located on the Mount of Olives, where Jehovah will atone for the sins of the world. Matthew 26, 30-45 Where he will ascend into heaven, following his earthly ministry. Acts 1, 9-12 Where he will return in glory at his second coming. Zechariah 14, 4-5 And where he will then re-enter the temple through the mercy gate. Ezekiel 44, 1-3 As will the Shekinah. While all those glorious deeds lie in his future, in the dream Jehovah serves as a patient first guide, while Nephi experiences for himself the dream of his father. Jehovah begins this small mission as he begins his great premortal ministry, Moses 4.2, by glorifying Elohim, the Most High God, 1 Nephi 11.6. He alludes to his own descent from heaven as the Son of God, 1 Nephi 11.7 then demonstrates to Nephi that the tree opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives represents his mother and him. When Jehovah shows Nephi the tree his father had seen, Nephi describes it as the epitome of divine beauty. Quote, And the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty, and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. End quote. 1 Nephi 11.8 Nephi then says, quote, I beheld, thou hast shown unto me the tree which is precious above all. End quote. 1 Nephi 11.9 A phrase that he will repeatedly echo when he later talks about how the Book of Mormon will restore plain and precious truths that have been expunged from the Bible. Knowledge of Mother in Heaven would surely be the most precious of all the truths that would be restored. 1 Nephi 13.29 and 32, 34 through 35, and 40. In continuing refutation of Deuteronomy, which denies the corporality of God, Deuteronomy 4:12:15 through 16, speaking as a man speaketh with another, Jehovah asks Nephi, "What desirest thou?" First Nephi 11:10 through 11. Nephi says he wants to know the meaning of the tree. Jehovah commands Nephi to look. But as he looks at Jehovah, the Lord vanishes, and Nephi sees instead a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. 1 Nephi 11.13 More language linking the virgin to the tree follows, as Nephi tells his new guide what he sees, quote, a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. End quote. 1 Nephi 11.15 the angel who has descended to take the place of Jehovah now tells Nephi that, quote, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God, end quote, 1 Nephi 11.18. The angel then repeats Jehovah's earlier command, look. Nephi looks, and this time sees Jehovah, who had previously disappeared, but who now reappears in the form of a baby. Quote, and I looked and beheld the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. And the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? End quote. 1 Nephi 11, 20 through 21 
the embodiment of the tree's exceeding whiteness and great beauty in the Virgin makes the meaning clear. The tree is the mother of God, and the fruit of her womb, the fruit borne by the tree, is the divine Jehovah in mortal form. This fruit is desirable to make one happy, Asher. It is a source of exceedingly great joy, Asher. 1 Nephi 8, 9, and 12. Coming as they do from a culture that has viewed the tree as signifying the queen of heaven, the wife of El, and the mother of Jehovah, Lehi and Nephi surely grasped the deeper, implicit meaning of this tree that is now explicitly linked to the mother of God. The tree doubly signifies both Mary, the beautiful and white mother of God after the manner of the flesh, 1 Nephi 11.18, and Ella, the mother of God after the manner of the spirit, whose beauty exceeds all other beauty, and whose divine whiteness literally exceeds the whiteness of the driven snow, 1 Nephi 11.8, because her robe is made of light, the light of the first day. The vision then underscores the tree's connection to both the earthly and the divine mothers of Jehovah by linking it with another entity connected with both. The scriptural iron rod leads not just to the tree of life, but also to the fountain of living waters, 1 Nephi 11.25, the Gihon spring, which is associated with Asherah, and through its other name, the Virgin Spring, with both Asherah and Mary. This spring is also associated with Eden, the home of the tree of life, for Gihon is one of the four rivers that flows out of Eden, Genesis 2.13. The living waters of this fountain are, in turn, shown to be the waters of baptism, of spiritual rebirth, for in the next verse, Nephi is again commanded to look, and then sees the baptism of Christ, 1 Nephi 11, 26-27. Both tree and fountain, Nephi tells us, signify the love of God, 1 Nephi 11, 22 and 25. The Divine Mother and the Divine Son are the love of God, 1 Nephi 11, 22 and 25, in multiple senses. They are the objects of God's love, but also preeminent earthly manifestations of His love for all humanity, because they make people, Asher, happy, full of joy. 1 Nephi 8, 9, and 12. Having again reiterated the connection of the Asherah tree with the tree of life, 1 Nephi eleven twenty five and 15, 21 through 22, Nephi introduces another tree, the cross, Acts 5, 30, upon which the fruit of the divine and earthly mothers will be hung, 1 Nephi eleven thirty three. So while we do not know for certain where Golgotha was, as some scholars do, the dream locates the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount Olivet. As the righteous multitudes press forward clinging to the iron rod, they approach Gethsemane and the cross, and there pluck from the tree and partake of the saving fruit that is most sweet and desirable above all other fruit. 1 Nephi 8, 11-12 The Body and Blood of Jesus, the Atonement of Christ 
Images of the Gethsemane Atonement often show Christ leaning upon or framed by an ancient, twisted tree that seems to reflect and share his agony. It is probably no accident that the atonement begins in a garden, and a garden named Gethsemane, which translates as the oil press. In the atonement, the fruit of the mother tree is pressed to yield the sacred anointing oil that heals the sick, resurrects the dead, and elevates ordinary mortals to be divine kings and queens, priests and priestesses. It is likewise no accident that Christ completes the atonement hung on a tree. In the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, Mother in Heaven was, in a sense, symbolically present with her Son, sharing in his suffering and providing for the salvation of all her other children. While the Deuteronomist co-creators of our world made it impossible for her to appear openly, at the cross as in Lehi's dream, Mother is nevertheless unmistakably present in symbol and surrogate for those who have eyes to see. At Golgotha, the cross is her symbol, and Mary, the mother of God, is again her surrogate, standing at the base of the tree and sharing in the suffering of her son, John 19, 25-26. The shared suffering of mother and son is beautifully evoked by a passage that is not incorporated in the Bible, but that was quoted as authoritative scripture in the early Christian work, the Epistle of Barnabas, quote, God points to the cross of Christ in another prophet, who saith, And when shall these things be accomplished? And the Lord saith, When a tree shall be bent down, and again arise, and when blood shall flow out of wood. End quote. This passage may well reveal Mother's suffering during the crucifixion of her son, and her relief at its conclusion. While Christ suffered, Blood flowed not just from his body, but from the symbolic body of his heavenly mother, who was bent low and shared agony as her son suffered. Two other likely surrogates are Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene. The atonement is framed by encounters between Jesus and these two Marys. Prior to the atonement, Mary of Bethany anoints Christ's head and feet with the precious oil used in the temple that is previously discussed, derives from Mother in Heaven and is associated with the healing and resurrection that Christ will soon enact. Mark 14, 3-9, John 11, 2, and 12, 1-8. This anointing by a woman, symbolically by Heavenly Mother, marks Jesus as the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ who in his suffering and death will atone for the sins of the world. Mary Magdalene joins Mother Mary in attending the Savior when he is on the cross, John 19.25, and again attends when he is laid in the tomb, Mark 15.46-47. Importantly, Christ is buried in a garden, John 19.41, presumably surrounded by trees, and there receives the immortal body that is promised to all who partake of the tree of life. Moses 4.8. After being resurrected in an immortal body, the Savior first comes to a woman, Mary Magdalene, before going to anyone else, even before ascending to the Father, 
John 20, 13-17. This supremely important visit, which earned Mary the honorific Apostle to the Apostles, reflects an ancient type scene in which a wife-slash-goddess participates in the resurrection of her husband. Kevin Christensen notes that we see this pattern in the Book of Mormon, as Lamoni's wife raises Lamoni from the dead, Alma 19, 11-13. This appearance of a type scene may indicate the primacy of Christ's return to Mother in Heaven. It may also suggest that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Christ, the other half of the unit that will make him Elohim. The Allegory of the Olive Nephi reports three times of his father's teaching. In each of these reports, as if to emphasize its theological importance, a tree is featured as a key element in the instruction. After reporting Lehi's dream in 1 Nephi chapter 8, Nephi resumes his account of Lehi's teaching in chapter 10. There, Lehi again talks about the Messiah and a tree, specifically the tree in the allegory of the olive, which is briefly recounted, 1 Nephi 10, 12-14. As he did with the dream, Nephi again takes up his father's tree theme at somewhat greater length, 1 Nephi 15, 12-16. But it is another son, Jacob, who fully expounds upon Lehi's second tree theme using the words of Zenos, a prophet whose writings were incorporated in the brass plates. The life and prophecies of Zenos provide strong evidence that the divine sonship of Jehovah and motherhood of Ella were known anciently but were suppressed. Zenos understood and boldly testified of the sonship and mission of Christ. 1 Nephi 19.10, and Alma 33.13, and 34.7. And he repeatedly mentioned the mother tree. Because of his bold testimony, he was slain. Helaman 8.19. The main characters in Zenos' allegory of the olive tree are the lord of the vineyard, the main servant of the lord, and a tree. Thus, each saving member of the heavenly family is represented. The Lord generally seems to be El, and the servant generally seems to be Jehovah. The tree is not one, but three things, a trunk and roots, branches, and the fruits on the branches. The trunk and roots seem to be Ella, Asherah. They are four times referred to as the mother tree, Jacob 5, 54, 56, and 60, and are celebrated because of their goodness. Jacob 5, 36-37, and 59. Trunk and roots are an apt representation of Ella, because the main tree feature of the Asherah statue was a tree trunk. The branches of the tree are the various human cultures of the house of Israel and of the Gentiles. The fruits are individual human souls. In addition to reflecting the history of Israel, the allegory of the olive is a theodicy that accounts for the existence of evil in the world. And the explanation it gives for the existence of evil is that the tops of the branches have become too distant from the root of the tree. When the Lord of the vineyard asks, quote, Who is it that has corrupted my vineyard? End quote, the servant replies, quote, Is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots which are good? 
And because the branches have overcome the roots thereof, behold, they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. End quote. Jacob 5, 47-48 When the tops of the branches, the elites of the society, become too far removed from the trunk and roots of the tree, when they have strength in themselves and can reduce or obscure the influence of the trunk and roots, evil enters the world. In his introduction to the allegory, Jacob highlights the problem in 548 and clarifies its meaning in a passage that seems to perfectly describe the governing Deuteronomist elites of the Jerusalem his father was forced to abandon to avoid being killed like Zenos. Quote, but behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them, and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand, because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. End quote. Jacob 4, 14. In the heavenly family of Father, El, Mother, Ella, and Elo, the Elohim, and Messiah, Son, Jehovah, the Jews had a plain and easily understood truth about the nature of God and the plan of salvation. But they killed prophets like Zenos, who taught this plain truth, and they looked beyond the mark to a father who lacked both body and spouse, and to a Mosaic law that they could not understand because they rejected the doctrine of Christ. And because they cast the heavenly family from their temple house and distanced themselves in particular from the trunk and roots of the mother tree, they and their temple must needs fall. Unfortunately, while their city and temple fell, these Deuteronomist elites remained in control of the scriptural text and handed down a gospel that wrote Mother in Heaven out of its theology and that looked beyond the mark such that they could not see Jehovah, the Messiah, when he stood before them in the meridian of time. The allegory of the olive suggests that much evil entered the world, that Judeo-Christian culture was corrupted when Mother in Heaven was blotted out. With no mother in heaven, trunk and root, God's vineyard could yield little flourishing fruit. Fortunately, in Jacob chapter 5, the longest chapter in all scripture, the Book of Mormon preserves knowledge of the mother tree, of mother in heaven, and the critical role she plays in the redemption of her children. Deuteronomist Apostasy in the Book of Mormon when Lehi fled doomed Jerusalem, he took with him the brass plates, which contained a version of Deuteronomy, 1 Nephi 5.11. His group seems to have included some Deuteronomists. By the end of Jacob's life, the fundamentalist Deuteronomists are on the rise in winning many adherents, Jacob 7.3. One of them, a learned man named Sherem, accosts Jacob to challenge his belief in the gospel of Christ. Relying upon Deuteronomy, Sherem accuses Jacob of committing three capital crimes, causing apostasy, blasphemy, and false prophecy. 
Deuteronomy warns against listening to any prophet, even one showing signs and wonders, who causes the people to, quote, go after other gods which thou hast not known, end quote, and who thrusts, quote, thee out of the way, end quote. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Sherem says Christ is such a God, and that Jacob has, quote, led away much of this people, that they pervert the right way of God, and keep not the law of Moses, which is the right way, and convert the law of Moses into the worship of a being which shall come many hundred years hence, end quote. Jacob 7, 7. Jacob replies that all scripture testifies of Christ, if properly understood. Jacob 7.11. Then, at Sherem's insistence, gives a sign. Sherem is struck down, Jacob 7.14, and ultimately confesses his error, Jacob 7.18-19. The Christ-focused religion of Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob seems to prevail. But signs seldom persuade in the long run, and Deuteronomists are specifically instructed to ignore them. They apparently did. As Sturgis notes, quote, with the exception of Enos's private experience in the wilderness, the doctrine of Christ disappears entirely after the book of Jacob. We are informed that they were strict in keeping the law of Moses, but the doctrine of Christ disappears from the text. Apparently Nephi and his brother were unsuccessful in their bid to establish the doctrine of Christ as the official religion of the Nephites, end quote. It thus had to be restored. The Restoration of the Almas That an apostasy occurred is evident from the priests of Noah, who have no knowledge of Christ, and teach that salvation comes by the law of Moses, Mosiah 12, 28, and 32. The true faith has been lost, and Alma 1, inspired by Abinadi, must restore it. At the focal point of Alma's restoration, we find conjoined Nephi's three symbols of mother in heaven, the tree, the fountain, and baptism, 1 Nephi 11, 25-27. Protected in his ministry by a grove of trees, Alma 1 brings those who will listen to a place called the Waters of Mormon, where there is a fountain of pure water, Mosiah 18:5. There his converts are symbolically born again, and enter the path of faith through baptism. Baptism is an inherently female symbol. Our literal emergence at birth from the amniotic water and the entrance of the spirit into our body is replicated as we are symbolically born of the water and the spirit in our baptism and confirmation. Moses 6.59 Christ himself noted this connection in a conversation with Nicodemus his only recorded discussion of baptism, John 3, 1-7. The linking of baptism with the tree and fountain both here and in Nephi's vision suggests that baptism, like the tree and fountain, signifies the presence of Mother in Heaven. There are many other possible intimations of our Heavenly Mother in the Book of Mormon, too many to mention in this short essay. For example, the apotheosis of Alma the Younger's teaching on this theme is his great sermon on faith in Alma 32. There he compares faith to the planting and nurturing of a seed, that when it is mature, becomes the tree of life. In describing the tree, he explicitly echoes Lehi's dream. So the path of faith, 
like the iron rod, leads us to the great symbol of Mother in Heaven, the Tree of Life, from which we partake of the fruit she bears, the atonement of her firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ. Alma 32, 36-43 The great seers of the Book of Mormon, Lehi, Nephi, Jacob, Alma 1, Alma 2, and Benjamin, were charged to make manifest the secret things, the sacred mysteries of God, to, quote, make known the plain and precious things which have been taken from the Bible, end quote. 1 Nephi 13.40 Perhaps the most plain of the hidden things they bring to light, because it is such a commonplace truth outside the context of theology, is the idea that we have a mother as well as a father in heaven. She who was called Wisdom and the Shekinah, our mother in heaven, with the Father as Elohim, jointly rules over us. Mother in Heaven in the Garden The place in the scriptures where the active and central role of Mother in Heaven is most apparent is in the story of Adam and Eve in Eden. As its incorporation in the temple ceremony indicates, this narrative is an especially important one because it is emblematic of choices all make and paths all follow in their journey through life. It illustrates that the prescribed course is one eternal round, 1 Nephi 10.19, a great cycle of departure and return that casts Mother in Heaven in the pivotal role of she from whom we depart and she to whom we return. The most important things in the Garden of Eden are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Each tree may signify an aspect of Mother in Heaven. The placement of the tree of life in the midst of the garden, Betok Hagen, Genesis 2.9, underscores the central role played by Heavenly Mother in the salvation narrative. The Hebrew word Betok means midst, middle, center. This mother tree is the symbolic umbilicus of the garden, the point at which souls are nourished and prepared for birth. Near the tree of life is the tree of knowledge of good and evil also described as Bittuk Hagen, Genesis 3.3. As previously discussed, the fruit of the tree of life is Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. To partake of that fruit is to gain immortality. If one has properly prepared before partaking, one also gains eternal life. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is misused by Satan, who persuades Eve and Adam to partake of it. To partake of that fruit is to know evil and death. Thus, after Satan gives Eve the fruit and persuades her to eat it, she suddenly knows that he is Lucifer, who was cast out of Elohim's presence because of rebellion. This rebel, who embodies all evil, has a role to play in our struggle to become as one of the gods knowing good and evil. Doctrine and Covenants 29.39 and Moses 4.10 he plays this malevolent role at the sufferance of the Elohim, who circumscribe his actions and ensure that they do not compromise, but rather facilitate human agency. The divine actors in the garden narrative of the Bible and the Book of Mormon seem to be featured on a cylinder seal found on the site of the ancient Syrian city of Mari. The central figure in this image is El, El sits in the mountain high place where shrines or temples are found, 
He is positioned as Lord of the cosmos, ruling both the stars above and the waters below. On the right hand of El, in her conventional tree form, is his wife, Asherah. She holds in her hand the Asherah cult object, the stylized almond tree that is cut into the shape of a menorah. This fully blossomed mother goddess seems to be the tree of life. A goddess appears in that same tree guise on El's left. This Asherah figure, who is less fully blossomed, holds a container, possibly of food, and may signify the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Each goddess stands in the midst of a fountain of water, and thus brings together tree and fountain, Nephi's main symbols for Mother in Heaven. Beneath El's feet, in a debased or subordinate position, is the serpent, who may signify Satan. Yahweh stands on the Tree of Life side of the image, holding a spear. Yahweh seems to be fighting against and subduing the waters that spew from the mouth of the serpent. El's attention is focused on the Tree of Life and Yahweh side of the image, but placement on a cylinder makes the image an eternal round. On this cylinder we thus find all the key members of the Holy Family, El and Ella, Yahweh and Lucifer arrayed as we might expect to find them in the Garden of Eden. Keel dates this cylinder seal between 2350 and 2150 BCE, which makes it roughly contemporaneous with Abraham. Mari is located in northwest Mesopotamia, on the border of Canaan, that is, in the likely location of Abraham's original homeland, according to Peterson and Gee. Given this coincidence of time and place, the image may reflect beliefs held by Abraham that constituted the religion Josiah opposed and reformed. The image may partially explain why Abraham set up his altar in Shechem, where there was a great Ella oak tree, Genesis 12, 6-7, and 35-4. It supports the idea that Mother in Heaven was anciently understood to be both the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. It also affirms her role as witness of sacred covenants. While quite early embodied in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, the spiritual mother of all living is also signified by a surrogate in the Eden narrative, her elect daughter Eve, the physical mother of all living, who partakes of the wisdom tree, that she might be wise, and then persuades Adam to do and be likewise. When she partakes of the tree, Eve becomes the firstborn mortal. By then persuading Adam to partake, she delivers him into mortality and becomes the mother of all living. As Adam had given birth to Eve when a rib was taken from his side to form her, so Eve now gives birth to Adam by persuading him to eat the fruit. These reciprocal births indicate the equality and mutual dependence of female and male. After partaking of the fruit, Eve and Adam develop new dimensions of moral awareness. They recognize that they are naked. Mother in Heaven now clothes her newborn mortal children, providing leaves from fig trees that they use to make aprons and cover their nakedness. When they hear God walking in the garden and their new moral awareness fills them with fear, they flee, in a figurative sense, to Mother for comforting shelter. Clad in foliage, they seek to hide themselves in the midst of a tree, Betok Etz, possibly in the foliage of the Tree of Life itself.
Genesis 3, 7-8. Having chosen a mortal life by partaking of the forbidden fruit, Eve and Adam are then condemned to have a rich array of difficult life experiences from which they will learn and grow. God replaces their tree-leaf clothing with a garment made from animal skins. They are then separated from the tree, lest Adam put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Genesis 3.22 Cherubim, with flaming swords who light the tree of life and anticipate the burning bush and the menorah, are charged to prevent their immediate return to the tree. Adam and Eve's task is to return to the tree of life at the end of their mortal experience and worthily partake of its fruit. They will then receive the joy of eternal life and exaltation. In the lengthiest account we have of his teachings, Lehi reflects upon these events and the central role played by the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Were it not for the tension embodied in these two trees, Lehi tells Jacob, quote, the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, end quote, would be destroyed. 2 Nephi 2.12 Quote, It must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. Wherefore the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. End quote. 2 Nephi 2, 15-16 The specific negative consequence faced by Adam for partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was being compelled to engage in fruitful labor. Genesis 3, 17-19 The wellspring of much of the deepest satisfaction human beings enjoy in this life. Eve was condemned to repeatedly experience pain in giving birth. Quote, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. End quote. Genesis 3.16 But for almost all women, the sorrow and pain of birth is greatly overshadowed by the joy of having a new child. For most, the pain of being unable to have children would be or is much greater than that of giving birth. And that, Lehi tells Jacob, is what Eve and Adam would have experienced had Eve not partaken of the fruit. Quote, they would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and they would have had no children. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, Asher, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. Behold, all these things have been done in the wisdom of he who knoweth all things. Adam and Eve fell, that men might be, and men are, that they might have joy. Asher. End quote. Second Nephi 2. 22-25. In summary, then, Mother in Heaven is the one from whom we take leave as each of us at our appointed time is born into mortality. Like her surrogate Eve, she probably experiences momentary pain as we depart to be born as mortals, but that pain is surely overshadowed by the joy of our birth into the wonderful world she, the Father, and the Son have provided for us. And with divine foreknowledge, she can anticipate our return to her, to the tree of life, which will help make us immortal and raise us to the kingdom of glory merited by our degree of faith in her, the Father, and the Son. Alpha and Omega In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, 
The plural Elohim and the Garden of Eden narrative indicate that Mother in Heaven was present with the Father and played a pivotal role in the creation of the world and in the advent of the first dispensation of the Gospel, Alpha. The Eden narrative also hints that she is represented by the Tree of Life, which is the proper end of our mortal existence, the thing that transforms us into immortal and exalted beings, Omega. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Mother in Heaven's role as Omega is emphasized. At the beginning of the book, readers are enjoined to complete the spiritual life cycle by returning to the garden and the tree of life. Quote, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. End quote. Revelations 2.7 In the middle of the book, the Revelator merges the identities of Mother in Heaven and her surrogate Mary by weaving together an account of the war in Heaven and an account of Christ's birth. The chapter opens with the appearance of, quote, a great wonder in Heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, end quote. Revelation 12.1 This is Ella, the Queen of Heaven the eternal mother of Jehovah, quote, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered, end quote, Revelation 12.2. Jehovah is born both in heaven and on earth. Standing in opposition to this new king is a dragon, whose, quote, tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. End quote. Revelation 12, 4-5 In a likely allusion to mother being hidden in plain view on the earth, the revelator now says, quote, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, end quote. Revelation 12.6. Suggesting that this is Heavenly Mother, the passage next returns to heaven and continues, quote, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, end quote. Revelation 12.7 and 9. Furious at his ejection from heaven, Satan focuses his attack on Jehovah's mother, quote, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And the woman flew into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, end quote. Revelation 12, 13 through 14 and 17. In these verses, Mother in Heaven is attacked and forced into the wilderness. She seems to embody, as she does in the allegory of the olive tree, not just herself, but also the true faith in and church of Jesus Christ, which are also persecuted and which are also hidden in the wilderness, where, like her, they wait to be restored. That Satan makes war on, quote, the remnant of her seed, 
which keep the commandments of God, quote, that is, on all human beings who keep the commandments, is clear evidence that the revelator here refers to Mother in Heaven, not to Mary. As Revelation and the Bible close, Mother in Heaven is again prominently featured as both the tree of life and the fountain of pure water seen by Lehi and Nephi. The final chapter of the Bible opens as follows, quote, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. End quote. Revelation 22, 1-2 Dave Butler has persuasively argued that the setting of this image is the Deber, the Holy of Holies in the temple. The tree of life is represented by the menorah. The twelve fruits are the twelve loaves of showbread, the bread of the presence, the food offering given to God in the temple. As we come to the tree of life and partake of its fruit, we eat the food of God because the atonement cleanses and perfects us and transforms us into gods. The twelve fruits also signify the sacrament. The twelve pieces of bread eaten by the apostles at the Last Supper. So each Sunday, as members partake of the sacrament, they partake of the fruit of the tree of life, the bread of the presence, the Last Supper, which, if consumed worthily, will make them gods. At the end of the Bible's ultimate chapter, the revelator sets the tree of life and the pure fountain before us one last time. Quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do Christ's commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. End quote. Revelation 22, 13 through 14 and 17. Present at the beginning, present at the end, Mother in Heaven joins the Father and Son as the Alpha and Omega of Scripture. Conclusion Continuing revelation is a fundamental doctrine of Mormonism. Quote, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, end quote. Ninth article of faith. Also fundamental is God's respect for agency, and implicit in that respect is the human co-creation of the world. What God can reveal at any given time is in part a function of the horizon of beliefs and practices that human beings have created for themselves through the exercise of their agency. Respect for agency thus entails a gradual unfolding of God's truth, quote, line upon line, precept upon precept, end quote, as human cultures are ready to receive it, 2 Nephi 28.30. The restoration of the gospel had to await, for example, the establishment of the U.S. Constitution and the proclamation of freedom of religion. At the earliest possible moment following that proclamation, God restored the true faith and true church that had been lost in the great apostasy. The Deuteronomist greater apostasy established a horizon of belief that made it impossible for Elohim to fully reveal the existence of and central role played by Mother in Heaven in the creation of the earth and in the lives of her children. 
Mother was present in Scripture, but unrecognized by most of the faithful for many centuries. Knowledge of her existence was restored by Joseph Smith, but though this truth was treasured and its implications were recognized, the culture of Christendom was not yet ripe for the full revelation of Mother in Heaven's presence in Scripture and in our lives. Nevertheless, as Isaiah prophesied when he foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem in Lehi's time, voices would speak from the dust when ancient texts and artifacts were rediscovered and would restore understanding that had been lost in the greater apostasy. Isaiah 29, 1-24 In our time, those voices have been speaking from the New World in the Book of Mormon, and from the Old, in texts discovered at Ugarit, Qumram, Nag Hammadi, and elsewhere. They also speak from the dust of ancient Jerusalem, as archaeologists uncover their ubiquitous figurines of, of Asherah, the tree goddess, and other artifacts that testify of Mother in Heaven. Hearing these voices from the dust, quote, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. End quote. Isaiah 29, 24. The work of Methodist scholar Margaret Barker demonstrates these voices from the dust are preparing Christendom to receive a restoration of the doctrine that we have a mother in heaven who plays a pivotal role in our mortal and eternal lives. As Mark S. Smith has observed, the, quote, zeitgeist of our age psychologically preconditions advocates to desire a goddess in ancient Israel, end quote. Culturally, the woman's movement has created a strong interest in and longing for the feminine divine. Thus, the world co-created by humanity may be prepared for the restoration of a new understanding that the Elohim are both father and mother, and that working as one with Jehovah and the Holy Ghost, they jointly orchestrate the salvation and exaltation of their children. In the church as in the world, we are developing new levels of understanding. Many Mormon scholars and individuals have begun to recognize that Mother in Heaven is represented in Scripture by, among other things, special trees. Understanding that, we can see that Mother was involved in the restoration from the beginning. It is not coincidence that the opening of the last dispensation took place in a grove of trees. If we back translated sacred grove from King James English into Biblical Hebrew, the word we get is Asherah. So, present in Joseph Smith's founding theophany were all members of the heavenly family, Father, Mother, and Son Jehovah, with Mother hidden in plain view, alluded to through the sacred grove itself. The scriptures have always told us that we have a mother in heaven, but it is not just scriptures we don't have that are sealed. The scriptures we do have are also sealed when our culture is not open to hearing what they say and or when we lack background information necessary to understand them. But the Lord says of sealed scriptures, quote, I will bring them forth in mine own due time, when I shall see fit in mine own wisdom to reveal all things unto the children of men, end quote. 2 Nephi 27, 21-22 Sealed scriptures are calibrated to reveal their truths in the times and places where human beings are prepared to receive them. As an inspiring story of Rabbi Abraham Barakim illustrates, our longing to know Heavenly Mother can unseal what is sealed, 
can open heaven and reveal her to us. Quote, Rabbi Abraham walked through the streets of his hometown, Safed, crying out, Arise, for the Shekinah is in exile. He longed more than anything else to bring back the Shekinah out of her exile. Advised to go to the wailing wall after fasting, he set off on foot. With every step he took, he prayed God to reveal a vision of the Shekinah to him. By the time Rabbi Abraham reached Jerusalem, he felt as if he were floating, as if he had ascended from his body. And when he reached the wailing wall, Rabbi Abraham had a vision there. Out of the wall came an old woman, dressed in black, deep in mourning. And when he looked into her eyes, he became possessed of a grief as deep as the ocean, far greater than he had ever known. It was the grief of a mother who has lost a child, the grief of Hannah after losing her seven sons, the grief of the Shekinah over the suffering of her children. At that moment, Rabbi Abraham fell to the ground in a faint, and he had another vision. In this vision, he saw the Shekinah once more, but this time he saw her dressed in her robe woven out of light, more magnificent than the setting sun, and her joyful countenance was revealed. Waves of light arose from her face, an aura that seemed to reach out and surround him, as if he were cradled in the arms of the Sabbath queen. Do not grieve so, my son Abraham, she said. Know that my exile will come to an end, and my inheritance will not go to waste. End quote. We are now culturally prepared to understand that Mother in Heaven is the necessary and equal completion of Father in Heaven, that Elohim is the union of Father and Mother. And voices speaking from the dust have providentially given us the background information necessary to more fully understand this truth. Thus, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, like Rabbi Abraham, we can come to know the Divine Mother, that deep in our hearts we, like him, long to know. This has been a recording of Hidden in Plain View, Mother in Heaven and Scripture, by Val Larson, published in Square 2, Volume 8, Number 2, Summer of 2015, and read by Sean Canny. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and website are credited, and it is used for non-commercial use. If you would like to read a printed version of this and other articles on Mormon thought, please visit square2.org. That's S-Q-U-A-R-E-T-W-O dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening.